Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The third presidential impeachment trial in American history is over. It is, therefore, ordered and adjudged that the said Donald John Trump be, and he is hereby, acquitted of the charges in said articles. The Senate voted almost exactly along party lines. Mr. Trump is not guilty either of abusing his power or of obstruction of justice with regard to his dealings with Ukraine. Only Mitt Romney rebelled, becoming the first senator ever to vote to remove a president of his own party from office. I knew from the outset that being tasked with judging the president, the leader of my own party, would be the most difficult decision I have ever faced. I was not wrong. Mr. Trump responded to the verdict like this. And this is really not a news conference. It's not a speech. It's not anything. It's just we're sort of... Uh, it's a celebration because we have something that just worked out. I mean, it worked out. We went through hell unfairly, did nothing wrong, did nothing wrong. He will now be the first president to run for re-election, having faced impeachment. From the outset, Donald Trump has challenged public expectations of what it means to hold America's highest office. But where did those expectations come from? You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, has Donald Trump reinvented America's presidency? My guests have spent the last four years trying to answer this question. Benjamin Witters and Susan Hennessy are senior fellows at the Brookings Institution and editors of the Lawfare blog. They also host the Lawfare podcast. Together, they're the authors of Unmaking the Presidency, Donald Trump's war on the world's most powerful office. Susan, Benjamin, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So let's start with the news of that Senate acquittal. Has anything surprised both of you from what you might have expected? Yeah, so I think anyone would admit to being quite surprised by Mitt Romney's vote to convict the president on one of the articles of impeachment. Um, you know, that that was certainly a, a dramatic and rather powerful moment and, and one that I think really changed the tone uh, and sort of narrative of what occurred and the meaning of impeachment. Um, that said, ultimately, the president was, of course, acquitted. Um, and that has, uh, I think, real consequences for the way we understand the impeachment power moving forward. If a president, uh, given the gravity of the wrongdoing alleged here and the strength of the evidence presented, is not convicted uh, and is not convicted and removed from office, it's hard to imagine what would uh, constitute an offense sufficiently serious. And so I do think we have to now understand the impeachment power as essentially not this counterbalance in the Constitution, but instead uh, just a measurement of how many votes of the president's own parties sit in the Senate. And and that will have long-term consequences. And Benjamin, how do you think the verdict changes the political landscape 
if he does, I mean, he's got away with it. Yeah, I think that's correct. I think the the way it changes the political landscape is that it doesn't. A lot of people, and I'm certainly one of them, had assumed that an impeachment and the ventilation of uh, evidence of this sort would put some kind of a dent in in uh, some portion of his supporters' approval of him. And that has not happened, and it did not dent his Senate caucus's support for him, even to the point uh, to take it a step beyond what Susan just said, that they declined to hear any of the evidence in question, right? So they heard arguments, and then they voted on whether to hear witnesses, including witnesses who had never been heard from before, and they decided not to. And so, you know, the Senate's institutional posture is really, don't confuse us with facts. We're not going to abandon this guy. And so, you know, I think that actually shows that the 40 to 45 percent of Americans that support Donald Trump are pretty committed to that proposition and are holding Republican politicians very much in line in that direction. So let's talk about the impact of the Ukraine affair. Do you think it is over? Uh, Donald Trump has said that he handled it perfectly. He says he has no regrets. We've already seen indications. You know, the, the president's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, indicated that um, he was continuing to look into the matter in Ukraine, and, and certainly the president is um, not professing to be at all chastened by this. Um, you know, that said, I do think it will be more difficult in in the next coming months, between now and the 2020 election in November, for the president to use the powers of his office against his political opponents. I think people are more. Focused focused on, on the question of sort of the, the proper use of, of executive power and authority. And so I think there were a lot of people who sort of presumed that no matter who the Democratic nominee was who, to run against Donald Trump, that person was likely to be under federal investigation because the president, of course, sits at the head of the Department of Justice. And I think the mere fact that we have uh, gone through this process is not just a message to the president, but, but a message to all those who are around the president. Who, um, who he might direct to engage in particular behavior. Sooner or later, that there will be oversight. I do think that that functions as, as a form of constraint. That's interesting, Benjamin. Do you completely agree with Susan there? Because our Lex columnist reflecting on this said, well, there's one way you could look at it that it will lead to greater constraint. And yet you'd have gone broke several times over predicting in the Trump presidency that he was going to pull back, draw in his horns. Well, I, I think you can argue it either way, honestly. And I personally don't think he's capable of restraint. And on the other hand, he is relatively capable of self-preservation. And so the question of, you know, whether he's capable of pushing the line but not so leaping over it that he renews these problems, we'll just have to see. I do assume that we will eventually have another round of this because I think he genuinely does believe that it is legitimate and appropriate for him to have his political enemies investigated and for him to use the law enforcement apparatus of this country and other countries in order to accomplish that. And so I think it's probably just a matter of time before he tries again. But that's just a guess. Let's turn to the question at the top of our show. Has he really materially changed the terms 
of the presidency. Susan, what do you think? Yeah, so I think that's still an open question for the moment, um, in part because the United States Senate does not have the final word. Ultimately, this is going to be a question for the American public. And so in some ways, the Ukraine scandal is sort of um, a capstone scandal. It's something that unites a lot of what we would argue are abusive features of Trump's approach to the U.S. presidency and his vision of the purpose of the presidency. And, and that really is the referendum here. And and the United States Senate has has decided they're okay with it. And, and that's ultimately what a vote to acquit is an expression of, saying this is this is a tolerable use of the powers of the office. Um, the American people will have their say in November. And so uh, on one hand, um, it's a little bit premature to say Donald Trump has completely transformed his office, has completely transformed the nature of the presidency moving forward. Because if there was decisive electoral rejection, that would be a message to future presidents that, you know, maybe you can get away with this in the short term, but but it's not politically viable, this vision of the office. On the other hand, if Donald Trump was to be reelected, that would be ratification by the American public. And, and I think we would see a lot of politicians, not just Donald Trump moving forward, um, but future presidents uh, also learning the lesson. And, and we really would see the nature of the office perhaps permanently transform. So, Ben, Susan seems to be suggesting we have to wait for the big moment of the vote later this year to find out if the presidency has changed or has changed irrevocably. But what do you think from what you've seen so far? Has the the kind of terms of trade of what it means to be president changed under Donald Trump? I think I would put it this way. Donald Trump is proposing a different vision of the presidency. Whenever Susan or I says this, somebody pushes back and says, wait a minute, he's so inarticulate. He's not theorized a vision of the presidency. That's giving him way too much credit. But look, he has on a consistent basis violated the normative expectations of the way presidents behave in a relatively consistent way over a long period of time. And I think when you do that, you are, if only in a voting with your feet kind of sense, at a de facto sense, you are proposing an alternative. And the alternative vision, which is in the book, the subject we try to distill uh, and isolate, you know, the longevity of that vision, whether it gets adopted in, and incorporated into public expectations of the presidency or whether parts of it do, is very much, as Susan says, open to ultimate uh, question whether the Senate was going to repudiate it. The answer to that question is no. And in the longer term, the question is whether the public is going to endorse or repudiate it. And I think at that point, you will be able to evaluate how permanent some of these changes are. I think right now what they are is a proposal for change. And how unique do you think this presidency is? If you look across the democratic world, I suppose you could argue that lots of leaderships feel that they're much more contested what we mean by them. It's much more in question how we put them on the spot and how do we allow for the fact that leadership itself may be changing in a, in a faster moving world. Or do you think that Trump is sui generis, is the one and only 
Yeah, so the idea that we really do try and take seriously in our book is that all presidents break norms. All presidents have changed their office, that the American presidency is a changeable institution that has changed over time. Um, and, and there are some ways in which Donald Trump is merely the completion of a trend or maybe a, a particularly uh, dramatic or, or exaggerated example of something that's been part of our presidency for, for a very long time. Um, but there are other ways in which Donald Trump is genuinely something new and different. That really reduces down to sort of his core vision and approach to the office. And, and that's that prior presidents have been able to separate out a sense of themselves and their own individual personal interests from the interests of the office. They understood that they both represented an, an institution and, and also were individual people. And what Donald Trump has done that, that really no president has done before is merged those interests entirely and, and really rejects the notion that there's such a thing as, as a public interest that's distinct from his personal, financial, political, or individual interests. And, and that really has a warping effect on the way uh, he exercises executive power across a range of different contexts. Uh, and it all reduces down to the core of, of sort of this vision that the purpose of the American presidency is, is to serve the president. And, I'm going to and leave that, in there because I almost hear this kind of burning righteousness in what you're saying. But, you know, quite a lot of people would say that if you looked at the fact that the Clinton presidency, what followed from it, the idea of a bit of a family firm, that there was another example. It tends to be very politicised and, and, and people get in the boxing ring for whichever side. But it is an example. The presidency was perhaps already changing there in, in living memory. And are you so sure that this idea of public expectations in office being different from private interest, private outlook, afterlife, so shall we say financial well-being, is it really so different or is it just that he does it a different way? It's really so different. You are right that there is a uh, – and by the way, it isn't new in American political history – an occasional dynastic quality to the presidency. It is also the case that people have occasionally or sometimes their personal interests and the presidency's interests have conflated in ugly ways. We have never seen a time when a president proudly declares that as the nature of his uh, understanding of the office. And uh, just to, to give you an example of this, when Donald Trump tweets, you do not know whether that is Donald Trump the man speaking or Donald Trump the institutional presidency speaking. I cannot name a time in American history when a statement from the president is so ambiguous as to what actor it represents. So when the president of the United States in very personal and demeaning terms attacks by name a career civil servant in the United States government, whether in the State Department or, uh, uh, you know, when he calls people human scum. Is that the presidency speaking or is that Donald Trump speaking? And in Trump's conflation of the office of the presidency with the person of the presidency, you genuinely don't know. In the traditional presidency, you actually do know. Let me make you a, a challenge to that, that partly it's the nature of 
social media that also the the separation of the office from the person, not only in the presidency, but certainly in, in roles of power, perhaps coming closer and closer. You can no longer get away with saying, I'm tweeting this. And by the way, here's a link to my institutional speech. I mean, a lot of people simply think it's quite a good thing that when they read a Donald Trump tweet, it tells you what's on the president's mind. He is Donald Trump. He's also the president. And that the tweet tells you both things. What's wrong with that? I think this is an area in which we have to acknowledge that there's no hypocrisy uh, to Trump's approach, that that he actually campaigned on, on sort of this rejection of a traditional presidency and, and that people elected him on that basis and that this is something that is appealing. Um, that said, you know, it, it is something that we, we've never quite seen before and that other presidents have been more careful about. So we've seen over the past three years the Department of Justice having to go into court uh, and tell our federal judiciary to ignore what the president of the United States States has said, that the president's statements are not policy, even the president's statements on important policy matters, that when the president says we're banning all Muslims and then issues a travel ban, that those two things are not connected to one another. And the problem is that in our system, which which has a unitary executive, an executive branch that, that really is just one person and then a bunch of people who are supposed to be carrying out his will, that puts tremendous pressure on the system and leaves leads to a lot of long-term structural consequences and oddities. And so uh, on one hand, um, you know, clearly there is something appealing, uh, you know, about the about Trump's sort of directness. Um, there is an, an authenticity to him that does appeal to, to a large number of the voting public. That said, that approach to the institution, um, it, it is something I, I think we haven't seen before. The question I would want to put to you both then is, has Donald Trump consciously reinvented or unmade or unmaking the presidency is the phrase that you use in the book, gone about it to that end? Or is this a side effect of the character of Mr. Trump ending up in the White House? I think it's a little bit more than a side effect. And it's certainly a little bit less than prior presidents who have theorized a kind of reimagination of the office and then gotten into it and tried to do that. So, you know, in the late 19th century, Woodrow Wilson wrote a series of uh, books and articles kind of critiquing American government. And so when he ran for president, he actually sort of implements his critique, right? And this is clearly nowhere near as theorized as that. On the other hand, we quote a Trump speech at a rally in Pennsylvania in 2017 or 18, in which he very affirmatively and consciously mocks what it means to be presidential and contrasts his style of engagement, direct engagement with rallies and and his sort of entertaining style with what he derisively calls presidential. I think that is, does show a certain degree of self-awareness about what he's doing. He knows he's charting a new course. He knows he's trying something new. He knows he is actively tapping into the contempt that people have for aspects of the traditional presidency, which people like Susan and me regard as dignified and respectful and respectable, 
but for a lot of people, it comes off more as pompous, hypocritical, and absurd. And so I, I think he's very self-consciously tapping into that. But isn't he delivering the kind of presidency that people who elected him asked for or approved of? And where does that lead? Once you've you know come up with a sort of charged list of bad things Donald Trump has done to the presidency, where does that leave what you know about how effective it is to resist or what works and what doesn't work? Susan. Yeah, so clearly Donald Trump is carrying out a vision that is not inconsistent with the vision he offered during the campaign and, and that he was elected on, on the basis of. That said, you know, I do think we need to take quite seriously this vision of the office and, and what the long-term consequences are because that's the decision that's up in November. So let's take for a moment um, the president's tendency to lie. So the Washington Post has now cataloged something like 16,000 lies that the president has told. But some of those have got to be bigger than others, 16,000. I don't want to go into the doc saying that uh, Donald Trump never tells lies because he does tell lies. But you see, I think that is that kind of never mind the quality feel the width sort of argument about Trump that some people find very suspect. Right. So it's both a question of quantity and quality, but it's also telling that um, a major American newspaper has never felt the need to catalog a president's lies before, that there's something different. And that's because embedded within what some people I think view as almost sort of a pathological nature to it, it is a different proposition, which is not just that it's okay if a president lies, but it's okay if the president isn't believed. And we see that play out in a lot of different ways, sort of the notion that the White House does not have credibility and that impacts our relationships with our allies, how seriously uh, you know, our adversaries might take our threats, how much faith the American people might place in, in representations of their government. And so I don't think that it's a question of whether or not Donald Trump has delivered what his base has wanted. He has done that in some basic emotional way. It's more a question of can we be really clear and, and historically grounded in what exactly Exactly the proposals are and what it would mean for the American presidency long term if this person was reelected. Because the way that we see whether or not an individual president is, is just a blip and sort of a weird thing that happens for a few years and then we return back to a traditional vision or instead the presidency has actually changed is this moment of reelection and whether or not the American people decide this is an approach to, to governance that we accept and, and that we want to see incorporated into our expectations moving forward. Uh, and Ben, where do you think this leaves the presidency as it's perceived on the global stage? Susan mentioned there how seriously or otherwise he's taken because he's so unreliable. But I, frankly, I would say sitting here in Europe, the sense that the president is unpredictable, but that can then suddenly strike out with all the force of the American might and military machine, as he did uh, recently in Iran with the killing of, uh, of General Soleimani, would imply that you would be wise to take this presidency very seriously indeed at the face value of what he says he's going to do or intends to do? Uh, the problem with that is that you can't because he says so many different things about what he's going to do and contradicts them so quickly that to take them all at face value is actually an impossibility. You would tie yourself into a pretzel. He's going to withdraw from NATO. He's going to slap all kinds of sanctions on the EU. He's going to be very strong internationally, which would seem to require NATO, right? He's going to make great deals. 
I, I mean, this is a presidency by impulse control disorder, and I don't envy. You don't think the, some American interventions in our lifetimes, including a fair few, I think I covered as a journalist, might have been described in the same way. The accusations of flip-flopping over intervention in the Balkans, the tendency perhaps to to get into things. Somalia would be another example from that era, and then quickly get out again. The to and fro over how long to stay in Iraq and Afghanistan. All of those, as it happened, preceded Donald Trump. Some of them fell on, on the, the Democrats' watch and some on the Republicans. But as a pattern, it doesn't strike me as entirely new. Well, look, there is no doubt that American foreign policy has a vacillating quality on a lot of things, but it generally does not have a vacillating quality on the big things. For example, the commitment to the security of Europe, the commitment to the security of uh, allies in, in East Asia. These are very stable, basic building blocks of American policy that no president, Democrat or Republican, has disrupted in the years since World War II until now. And, you know, the willingness to take matters that are bedrock consensus U.S. foreign policy and on a very impulsive basis treat them very flipply is new, destabilizing, and, uh, you know, uh, speaking personally, I think quite dangerous, especially because it is done with no or virtually no internal deliberative process that takes into account the diverse equities of the various components of the U.S. government. Let's perhaps in the final round look at this election year. What sort of president do you think will emerge at the end of this year, whether it is a Democrat or Republican? Will they represent a kind of shift that outlasts the way we're talking about Trump and Trumpism at the start of 2020? It's a bit of a crystal ball question, but Susan, you can gaze into it for us. Yes, it's difficult to know how to answer that, of course, because it's so highly dependent on whether or not Donald Trump is reelected or whether or not uh, there's a Democrat in, in the White House in 2020. That said, you know, Donald Trump has bulldozed a number of norms that the next president uh, will have to decide whether or not they wish to, to restore them, even in moments in which it might be political. Politically inconvenient. So this notion, for example, that our FBI director, the head of our law enforcement, is not a political appointee, that it's someone who serves a 10-year term. Um, Donald Trump demonstrated that the president can simply fire an FBI director because he wants to. And as a constitutional matter, that's absolutely true. Um, it's a normative constraint. It's a voluntary constraint. So we could imagine the next president coming in and saying, well, the FBI director, our current FBI director, might be a perfectly lovely man, but he's not my political appointee. He's not the person I wanted. And, and they could appoint their own person. It would be very difficult for Republicans or Democrats to object at this point. But it would fundamentally transform how we understand the head of law enforcement to be appointed and whether or not that is actually a political role or, or we want something more independent there. You know, whether or not the president holds daily press briefings again or instead says, you know, like Donald Trump, look, we, we've shown that we don't have to engage with the press on this daily formalized basis. And so we're not going to do that. 
that. Um, that would transform sort of what is an aberration right now into the new normal. And so there's a thousand different examples in which the next president who follows Donald Trump, whenever that might be, will have to make those decisions. You know, not all norms are good. There's a reason why some people are uh, welcome, you know, Donald Trump's disruption of the office. But those are not decisions we should want to be seen being made as an, an impulsive matter. Ben, I'm going to bring you in if I could. If there is anything and some things turn out well for bad reasons, some things turn out badly for what were thought of as good reasons, is there anything that you think about this eventful, contentious, both kind of hated but also adored by, by its followers presidency that you think will have turned out to have given the system a shakeup for the better? Yes, absolutely. Um, it is that the system got a shakeup. People like us have assumed that the traditional presidency, which we defend in this book, was self-defending. That is, that it was obvious that you want a presidency that deliberates. You want a presidency that is careful in its speech, a presidency that is extremely well-informed and not impulsive. And it turns out that a very large segment of the American population actually does not hold those things in high regard. And somehow we are going to have to adapt the traditional presidency to these expectations that it feel more immediate, it feel more engaged with a public that wants fast action, that is impatient with process. And I do think Donald Trump has pulled the mask off of a lot of public disregard for things that I did not know were held in public disregard. And I actually do think in a weird way that is a service. Benjamin, Susan, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having us. A lot of fun. Thanks for having us. And we'd love to know what you think, whether for better or for worse, has Donald Trump changed the presidency forever? And while you're on the subject, would you like to be president for a day and you could tell me what you do? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And to follow the 2020 election campaigns as they unfold, subscribe to our brand new podcast. It's called Checks and Balance. It's about the road to power in America. And you can subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. That's Checks and Balance for the global view on democracy in America. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.